In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Sunday before we start Lent, the week before Lent, we always read the story of the Last Judgment and the conditions and the circumstances and the criteria of the Last Judgment. With regard to what is said by Jesus in this, when he talks about the criterion, the criteria, brother, there's nothing particularly new about that. Classical Judaism has exactly the same rules. You feed the hungry, you clothe the naked, you house those who are without homes. This classical Judaism says this. There's nothing new in that part. What's new, is, of course, will be his claim made at the end of it. That's what's new. Let's talk about this this morning in, in three points. First, the criteria of the final judgment on history. And second, the heart of flesh. And third, let's talk about Jesus our Lord. First, the criteria for the final judgment on history. On June Tuesday, Tuesday, June 11th, 1895, John Acton shot off, which I think would be the last salvo of classical morality when he gave his Regius professor, his inaugural, inaugural lecture, the pre, as pre, Regius professor of history at Cambridge. He insisted in that lecture that the historian is not to find his principles, his moral principles, in history. He says, history is not concerned with principles. History is concerned with forces. One does not arrive at, he says, a knowledge of right and wrong from the study of history. He arrives at a study of right and wrong from the study of philosophy and the word of God. He does not come to history to teach him the difference between right and wrong. I said, call that the last salvo. In fact, it seems to me, since Newman had died five years earlier, it seems to me it, been, it may have been the last expression of common sense in the 19th century. He says, a jury must presume innocence until guilt is proven. He says, no such obligation rests on the historian. He may call it the way he sees it, and he may pass judgment upon it. Now, that was a salvo that was delivered against the moral relativism which had taken hold in the 19th century. You know, even back someone as late as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who hardly lived what we would call a high moral life, 
he was at least persuaded of the difference between right and wrong. And he was quite willing, therefore, to condemn whole societies for things that he thought wrong. Sane people are prepared to do that. Sane people these days, not so easy to come by. One looks at other philosophers of the 19th century, and the one that's been plaguing me lately is the man that I, I have, for whom I have the least regard and respect, Jeremy Bentham, the father of utilitarianism. For Jeremy Bentham, there is no difference between right and wrong. It's just what people happen to like. And if the majority someplace liked this, that's right. But it's wrong someplace else. Does that sound familiar? Every one of you has been exposed to that nefarious view. The identification of the good with the nice. When I was a little boy, they told me, be good. And that was usually accompanied, that exhortation, with a certain robust impression used in some other part of my anatomy. <laughs> Be good. Now, when I listen, I hear parents tell their children, Be nice. <laughs> Be nice. Okay. When I was a little boy, there was a bottle of iodine in our medicine cabinet. And on there were skull and crossbones. Drink this and you die. I notice now <coughs> the skull and crossbones have been replated, placed by a picture of Mr. Yuck. You know what I'm talking about? He looks sick. It's no longer drink this and you die, but drink this and you won't feel so good. Lord Acton, in his Regis Professor inaugural lecture, was in fact relying on the Sermon on the Mount. And he was relying on what we had today, the story of the Last Judgment. And by the way, they're paralleled in the Gospel of Matthew. They're paralleled. The first sermon and the fifth, they're paralleled. The things he told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount and the things on which we're to be judged in the last sermon are the same things. Now, who is going to be judged by those criteria? How does the parable begin? All the nations of the earth will be assembled before him. And all the nations of the earth will be judged on exactly the same criteria. No one is going to be able to come forward on that day and say, well, you understand, Judge, I was a Carthaginian and we practiced human sacrifice. It was socially acceptable in our time. And he says, oh yeah, I forgot. Let him off. That was socially acceptable. Human sacrifice was okay. Let him go. Or someone else is going to come by and say, well, you know, I lived in the Ming dynasty of China, and we didn't have the same attitude toward women you have. 
because you notice men and women are judged by the same criteria in this thing. The judge is not going to say, oh, that's right. The Ming Dynasty never got it right. You're okay. Or someone can appear before the judge and say, well, you know, I'm from Holland. And I lived, I lived in, the, in the 17th century. And we went down, we went down to Africa. We purchased slaves. And we brought these slaves back and we sold them to the, the, the southern colonies in a country that eventually became the United States. But you see, that was socially acceptable. There was nothing wrong with it. How is the judge going to deal with the abuse of women, child murder, and slavery? How is he going to deal with that? All with the same criteria. What he's saying in this parable, it doesn't make any difference what your society says is right. That does not establish the moral law. What God says, the law of God, the law of God given, very impressively on Mount Sinai, and repeated by Christ our Lord, that law of God for all nations is going to be obligatory. If we actually go out and say that, insist on that, that there is a difference between right and wrong, and we know what it is, we can expect to be called bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, and Christopher Hitchens would undoubtedly say, we have a lower IQ. I think I told you that last week. Say, pray, pray for Christopher Hitchens. He's dying. Pray for him. He's dying. Um, he's a... Uh, so, man, I have, to have a soft place in my heart for weird people, and I, I, uh, I have to. I mean, to <laughs> there's one law, one set of criteria for right and wrong for all human beings. We might occasionally feel, uh, and we should feel a certain sympathy for people who are ill-informed. But because something is culturally acceptable, or culturally permissible, or culturally preferable, does not make it right in the eyes of God, and should not make it right in the eyes of history. All right, let's go from the 19th century. Let's go back to the 7th century before Christ. The greatest religious figure in the seventh century before Christ was a man by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, even though we have other, other prophets like Habakkuk, Nahum, Zephaniah, from the seventh century before Christ, the one that towers over them all is Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been called the prophet of the heart which is why in the Western church, it was, I don't know about now, but, but for a millennium and a half, more than that, almost two millennia, the Western church read, during Lent, read two books, Jeremiah and the book of Deuteronomy. Very important to read those together. Jeremiah was a prophet of the heart. 
Jeremiah was watching the institutions of Israel collapse. He saw the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, fall to the Babylonian. Well, he didn't see it. He, he heard about it back, back in 722 he, to, the, to the Assyrian. Now the Babylonian was coming toward Judah. He was watching the collapse of Judah. He was watching the bunch of quizzling kings that ruled on the throne of David after the death of Josiah in 609. And then he was around when Jerusalem fell in 587. Where did Jeremiah go to find right and wrong? He found it in his heart. He found it in his heart. He could not find it in the, in the politics of his day, the culture of his day, the society of his time. He could not find it. But he went into the heart. Notice how often Jeremiah speaks about the heart. He's a man who was constantly examining his heart. He speaks about the heart is twisted and devious in all sorts of ways. He saw that the important thing was to come to love God with his whole heart. That theology of Jeremiah had a big influence on the re-editing of the Bible during the Babylonian captivity in the sixth century. It had a big influence. The Bible was in some way rewritten during the sixth century in the light of in the light of what Israel experienced during that century of, of alienation and captivity, oppression. And so when Israel came back from captivity, the Babylonian captivity, in 538, they were completely different people. Um, well, read it for yourself in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and somewhat reflected later in, in, in Chronicles. Read it for yourself. They were different people. The entire history of Israel had been rewritten during that time. The Law of Moses had been re-edited during that time, and a great emphasis was laid upon the heart. Now, the great prophet of the captivity, the greatest religious figure of the 6th century, was his disciple, a man by the name of Ezekiel. And the Lord speaks through Ezekiel, and he promises the renewal of his people and in what will that renewal consist? I will take out of your breasts the heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Notice nothing terribly spiritual. Just a heart of flesh that you can feel. Particularly feel for other people. This renewal of the heart, by the way, which... Jeremiah speaks of, becomes in the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, becomes the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. In case you're ever down waiting in the checkout line at Jewel Osco and that question arises, what's the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament? That's it. It's Jeremiah being quoted in, in uh, Hebrews 8. But Ezekiel takes this theology of the heart. He says, what is the heart? And what does the heart consist? He says, it's flesh. That is to say, it can actually feel. It's not hard. Now notice today in the, in the parable, why do certain people feed the hungry? Because they feel like it. They feel it is the right thing to do. 
They're trusting their moral feelings. And what about the other people who don't feed the hungry? What about those who do not clothe the naked or visit the sick? They don't feel like doing it. And they don't do it. Now, no one is going to be judged on his feelings. That's for sure. Nobody's going to stand there and say, well, I didn't feed the hungry, but I sure felt like it. We're going to be judged by what we do. But notice the impulse to do it is a matter of sentiment. It's a matter of what abides in the heart. The cultivation of the heart, my brothers and sisters, must contain a strong dose of discipline in the arts of compassion. And I don't know how one can possibly have the art of compassion without a certain amount of imagination, putting oneself in someone else's circumstances. Approached by someone who's hungry, we feed the hungry because we identify with them. Seeing someone homeless, we feel compassion for the homeless because we identify with them. That is to say, the cultivation of the heart requires an intentional cultivation of the imagination. What goes on inside of us? All those that all those sentiments, all those persuasions, all those visions, all those songs that come from this place inside us that in Hebrew is known as the leb, the heart. It's the interiority of man. In Greek, that's the splunkna in Greek. The splunkna are the organs of the upper torso, where you breathe, where the heart beats, where you hold somebody, somebody close. From this point, we're supposed to live. And from this point, the whole world is supposed to be changed. And finally, let's talk about Christ our Lord. These seem to be perfectly human sentiments we're talking about. There's no, there's no high theology at this point in, in the parable. The norms that are taken are the norms from traditional Judaism, the norms that the Torah taught the whole earth. But Jesus, notice at the end of the parable, identifies himself as the one who has served in the poor. As often as you fed me, clothed me, visited me, cared for me, you're one of mine. But if you did it for everybody else, you did it for me. Now there's the secret of the incarnation. That God, we believe God, Son, became man in order to identify himself with the human race. That elevates the human race. We're, 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 not, we're not descended from apes. That wouldn't be right even, if, even if, if Jesus hadn't been an incarnation. We're not descended from apes. We're made in God's image and likeness, according to the first chapter of Genesis. We're made in his image after his likeness. The original likeness, the original image is Christ our Lord. The image of the invisible God. It's his life that's lived within us. His Holy Spirit that breathes in our lungs. And his standard of the cross, which impels us. It's his life that's lived within us, his Holy Spirit that breathes in our lungs, and his standard of the cross, which impels us.